Josh. Good morning, everybody. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the teaching team. And I think that few things in life are as fun as giving a lemon to a baby. I think that is just an absolutely wonderful experience. Uh, We all wonder where our trust issues come from. Uh, It comes from that, that our parents liked to give us lemons when we were babies. It's just great to put the lemon in there and kind of watch the, the reaction. And the reason a baby reacts so strongly is actually because babies have more taste buds than we do. Uh, you actually, as an infant, have about 30,000 taste buds that gets progressively less over the course of your life. By the time you're an adult, it's only about 20,000, which is why flavors are so much more intense for babies and for little kids. It's why it's hard to get kids to eat bitter vegetables, but at some point, maybe later on in life, you start to actually enjoy those vegetables because the flavor is just too intense at the beginning. And so we have to develop a taste for bitterness, Right? Kids love sweet. Right? You can just mainline sugar to them, and they're, it's, they're happy as can be. But to develop something, a taste for something that's bitter, it, it takes some time. I actually, uh, about three years ago, decided I wanted to develop a taste for coffee. I did not grow up drinking coffee. Uh, I didn't... Uh, does anyone grow up drinking coffee? That would be... <laughs> That'd be especially an interesting house to live in. Some of you are like, I totally do. Like, I don't function. Any of you not function at all until you have coffee? A bunch of you are lying. <laughs> or you're just not awake yet because you didn't have it yet. But, but I always woke up pretty easy, but I, I spend time in coffee shops, and I have meetings, and I study and write sermons and stuff in coffee shops. And I, a few years ago, I was like, you know what? It'd be better if I, when I went to a coffee shop, drank a zero-calorie Americano versus a 400-calorie muffin. Okay, so I, it's like I need to develop the taste for coffee, but it, it's not easy to develop because it's bitter. And so it took me a while, and I had to kind of ease my way into it, but now I have the taste for coffee. I haven't developed the taste for beer, but that's another bitter thing that, that you don't typically like the very first, right? You give, you give an alcoholic drink to a kid, I know you're not supposed to do that, but you let them have a sip, and they go, Ugh, they're just totally disgusted by it because it's, it's bitter, other things just take a while to get the taste of, like kale is a bitter vegetable. And you really don't ever need to get used to kale. That's just one you don't have to try to acquire. It's, it's a garnish. It's really not meant to be eaten. So don't worry about kale. Never mind. You don't need that one. If you've ever spent time with people from uh, Australia or New Zealand, you know they have a thing that they put on toast and they put on all this other stuff. And it looks really good, like it's this spread that they put on their toast, and it looks like it must be made of cinnamon, like it's this cinnamon Nutella or something. And you're like, what is this? And then you have a bite of it, and it's absolutely gross because it's called Vegemite. And it's, it's made of yeast and like ground-up vegetables, and they smear it all over everything. It's disgusting, but you have to acquire a taste for it. Bitterness is fine in food. But bitterness is ugly in people. And you can acquire a taste for bitter food. It's pretty hard to acquire a taste for bitter people. And bitter people are really inconsistent with Christianity. Because in Christianity, we're the people who've been forgiven by God. We're the people who've been loved by God. We're the people who've been adopted by God. We're the people who, even though we rebelled against God, even though we ignored God, even though we blatantly disobeyed God, God welcomed us in, God forgave us, God died for us in the person of Jesus and welcomed us into his family. And so there really isn't a place for bitterness in a Christian's life. 
And yet some of us are bitter. You know anybody who's really pretty bitter? Like life is just kind of, they're grumpy all the time and and they're always kind of bitter and angry and grouchy. You know anybody like that? Don't elbow your neighbor. Do you know anybody like that? <laughs> right? Like we, th- these are the kind of people who like, you know, a server normally comes to a table and it says, hey, is everything okay? These are the kind of people you feel like the server should come up and say, is anything okay? Because they're just bitter. It's, a, it's an unappetizing kind of person to be around. And it has no place in the life of a Jesus follower. And what Paul is doing, the Apostle Paul, who uh, started the church in Ephesus and now years later is writing this letter to the Ephesians, what he's doing in this letter is he's describing what life should look like if you're a follower of Jesus. In chapters 1 through 3, he described what it is to become a follower of Jesus, that you trust in Christ, you're made alive by Christ, you're adopted into Jesus' family, and now that you're one of Jesus' uh, brothers, you're one of God's children, you are now to live in a new way. And this new way he describes in chapter 4, verse 22, as putting off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to put on the new self. And so what this section is, is describing these behaviors that you're to put off because they're not appropriate anymore, and some new ones that you're to put on, right? So when you're single, it's perfectly acceptable to take off your clothes and leave them anywhere you want in your house. I'm told that once you're married, this is not acceptable anymore. You're not just allowed to do that. And you go, well, what, what, what changed? Well, what changed is your status. You went from single to married. That, that's an identifier of you that should change your behavior. Well, in the same way, there's ways you can live when you don't know Christ that aren't appropriate anymore now that you've been adopted into his family. And so that's what we're doing in this section. It's just looking kind of verse by verse, a few verses at a time, at what we're to put off, what we're to put on, and then why. So that's what we're going to do in this particular passage as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for how you teach us and guide us. And we invite you now, God, to speak. Give us ears to hear you. Give us hearts that are tender to what you have to say. God, thank you that no matter how much our behavior changes, it doesn't earn us favor with you, but that rather because we've received your favor in Christ, you invite us to live differently. Help us keep that perspective as we go through this today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So we're to put some things off, we're to put some things on, and there's some reasons. So what are we to put off in this particular section? Well, I've summarized verse 31 like this, put off bitter fury. Put off bitter fury. There's actually six words that Paul uses in verse 31 to describe what we should put off. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So six things that we're to put off. I've summarized it. Put off bitter fury. I I don't really want to go through each of these words other than maybe just to say clamor is a word that means shouting or yelling. It's this kind of loud conflict. But each of these words, the, the main thing I want you to see is that there seems to be a kind of escalation. That 
you start bitter with this internal sense of anger and frustration and disappointment and grouchiness. You start bitter, and that begins to then express itself in a number of different ways. And it gets louder, and it gets more impactful, and it comes out on more and more people, but it starts in this small way. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the New Testament, the message, he says it this way. He says, make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Put off bitter fury. Let me ask you, are you bitter? Are you bitter? Or if you're just honest, you go, yeah, you know what? I, it doesn't take much for me to get pretty mad. I feel mad a lot. I feel grouchy a lot. I feel disappointed and frustrated a lot. Are you bitter? Paul says we've got to put that off. Well, if we're going to put it off, we might need to first figure out, well, where does this bitterness come from? And so I have a few ideas. Where does this come from? This is probably not exhaustive, but at least three places this comes from. The first one is unmet expectations. Right? You expected this, and you got that. You expected one thing, and something not that is what happened. Right? I just had this last night. I, Molly and I had a date uh, that we had had planned, and our, uh, one of our daughters was sick with a high temperature. Date canceled. Expectation here. Reality here. And the question becomes, what do you fill that gap with? And you choose what to fill that gap with. Do you choose it with, do you choose to fill it with gratitude? And well, at least she's healthy. At least she didn't die from this fever. (laughs) Give me another chance to be with my family at home. Or do you just... You know, having a kid's a nuisance anyway. I can't wait till they grow up, right? How do, you, how do you fill that gap? You can tell this is, I had to wrestle with this last night. I'm not sure I'm totally through it. But, but it, bitterness might just come from unmet expectations. And these might be fair expectations or unfair expectations. They might be realistic or unrealistic. But if you expect one thing and you get another thing, you might fill that gap with bitterness. Maybe your expectations are right. Maybe they're not. But some of you are bitter because those around you don't meet your expectations. You've got to really ask, is the problem that they keep not meeting my expectations or is the problem that I keep having unrealistic expectations? You've got to wrestle through that. But unmet expectations often can lead to bitterness. Similarly, unfulfilled dreams So this is not just in a moment my expectations were not met, but as I look at a kind of wide swath of my life, my expectations and my dreams and my hopes aren't met. I I, I dreamt that I'd have this kind of family, and I don't have it. I dreamt that I'd have this kind of marriage, and it's not that. I dreamt that at this point in my life, I'd have this much money saved for retirement. I don't have it. I, I, I dreamt that at this point in my life, I'd be able to do these things, but my health has kept me from doing it. Right, right? This, this long-range, unmet dreams, and you just have enough of these things, and you can start to get bitter. 
Again, maybe the dreams are fair and good and right, and maybe the dreams are unrealistic, but either way, if it's unfulfilled, you have to wrestle with, how am I going to respond? Well, I respond by getting bitter. Now, unmet expectations and unmet dreams, those are some things you have some control over, and I want to just encourage some of you, because some of you, you've been let down enough times on this that the way you've decided to handle it is, I'm just not going to have any expectations. I'm just not going to have any dreams. You've just gotten, you said, I'll respond with cynicism. You know what? No expectations means I can't be disappointed. That's actually bitter. That's a form of adopting a bitterness, a cynicism into your heart. And it's just not realistic. <laughs> who, who doesn't have expectations? That's not a thing. So maybe it's unmet expectations, maybe it's unfulfilled dreams, but there's another kind that you maybe don't even have any control over at all, which is just unhealed pain. Some of you have experienced a lot of pain. You didn't ask for, and you didn't sign up for, and you didn't deserve, and it wasn't your fault, but life has just been painful. Some of you have experienced tragedy and loss loss of someone you love, loss of a family member, a loss of a parent, a loss of a child. Some of you have experienced the loss of a marriage. You've been betrayed by somebody who was unfaithful to you. Some of you have experienced abuse of all different kinds and all different shapes, and it wasn't your fault, and you didn't choose it, and you didn't deserve it, but the trauma of that pain has affected you. Some of you, it's not any one thing, but it's just a bunch of little things. It feels like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's like getting eaten by a duck. Just over and over and over, little thing after little thing after little thing after little thing. And now you're just hurt, hurting. Listen, that's really, truly painful. And it is okay to feel hurt when all those things happen. If your health is breaking down and you don't have answers, that should hurt you. But if you don't, over time, heal from some of that pain, it doesn't mean the pain ever totally goes away, but if you don't experience some healing, you're going to end up embracing bitterness. Have you heard this phrase? Hurt people hurt people. I think that's absolutely true. I've just come to believe over time now, as I interact with people who are just bitter and angry and you can't please them and they're never happy, I just kind of assume they must just really be hurting. Because I don't think you get that bitter and I don't think you hurt people that much unless you've been hurt. But hurt people hurt people. Healed people help heal people. And so even if you've experienced pain that isn't your fault, you've got to work to get healed. And that's what I want to talk about next. How do you put this off? How do you put off this kind of bitterness, right? If it's like, hey, I, I've just been hurt in these ways, and I've experienced loss in these ways and tragedy in these ways, or it's just a lifetime of unmet expectations and dreams, how do you put that off? How do you just say, well, I'm just going to stop feeling that way? I don't think it works like that. I think there's a bit more of a process that you've got to work through. Let me describe what a process like that might be. How do you put this off? Well, first, you'd have to see it. You have to see it. Do you see that you're in pain? 
See, here's one of the things, and you know this if you've experienced physical pain, you can get so used to physical pain that you don't actually think it hurts anymore. And the same thing is true emotionally. The same thing is true spiritually. Some of you are in pain and you don't see it. And this is an invitation maybe for you to just see it, for you to acknowledge it, for you to recognize, yes, I do feel bitter. I do feel hurt. I do feel upset. I do feel disappointed. See it. But then you got to grieve it. We don't do this well as a culture. We don't do this. I mean, anyway, grieving just hurts. It's hard to do and it's hard to sit in. But it's really hard when you have a culture that's like, all right, let's move on. Just get over it. How long has it been now? You're still feeling that way? And whether anyone actually says that, that's often the feeling that we feel like when we're going through grief. But maybe you need to grieve. Maybe you need to just let it hurt for a while. And you probably need to do that in relationship, which is the next thing, is talking. You need to do this in community. This is not just like, hey, go get a book on grief and read it. You're not a brain on a stick. You're a whole person, which means actually one of the things God is going to use to help bring about healing is talking, is bringing about relationship. I, I, I know that this is a lot of how it works like with PTSD. Psychologists have studied what happens, uh, particularly with soldiers or people that experience other kinds of trauma uh, as a result of you know, how, how their brain works. And what happens is when you experience trauma, particularly a PTSD kind of a thing, is the neural pathways, the kind of roads that connect in your brain get broken. And when that kind of thing happens, if you think literally in a PTSD thing, you hear a car backfire, and instead of thinking, oh, that's a car backfiring, that neural pathway is broken, and you instead drop on the ground because you think an IED just went off. And so those pathways in your brain, the way God's wired you, actually have to be healed. And psychologists have looked at this, and neuroscientists have looked at this to say, how, how does that happen? How does that healing happen? And it happens in community, in relationship with people who see your pain, who take it seriously, who are warm, and who can get you to talk about it. If, if you have something in your life that you go, I just can't talk about it, that is a sign that it's not healed. And what you might need to do is to say, i got to find a safe person I can talk through this with. It's one of the things we want to try to be as a church and as a church leadership is to provide opportunities for counseling and for care and for you to have some people to talk with. Maybe it's one of our pastors. Maybe it's a bunch of people in our church who are just trained as counselors. Maybe it's people who as a vocation are therapists and counselors that we can help refer you to. But if you're a person who who's realizes, you know what, I'm bitter because I've got these hurts that I haven't healed from, whether they're your fault or not, we want you to come. We want to help you. We want to encourage you. Listen, we get we don't always do it well. We, get, we, don't, we drop the ball at times, but we want to try to help get you into relationships that will help you heal. One of the things that this is probably going to lead to as well is the need to repent. To repent. Repent is a word that means to turn around, to change your mind. You had been thinking and living one way, and now you realize, I've got to live and think a different way. Right? Because maybe what's happened is all this hurt has led you to kind of respond, even if the, the thing that happened to you wasn't your fault, your response is in your control. And if you respond in ways that are angry and bitter and sinful and distrusting of God, then you need to repent of those things. You need to turn from that. And it may need, 
may lead to you needing to forgive. To forgive the people who hurt you. To forgive the people who've disappointed you. Now, get this. When I say forgive, I don't mean necessarily that you actually talk to the person and say, I forgive you. This is really key. Because what that requires is that that person acknowledges what they did was wrong. Right? If they don't acknowledge that they sinned against you, if they don't acknowledge that they hurt you, you don't say, I forgive you. What instead you do is you go to the Lord. And you say, Lord, I know they don't see it. Lord, I know they don't feel it. But God, before you, I forgive them. And I pray that maybe they'll see it someday and I'll have the chance to tell them. But for now, I just want to, between you and me, God, I want to forgive. That's what Paul's talking about here in this passage, is forgiving. Now, here's the other thing I know, is that some of you, you're not bitter and angry and wrathful and slanderous, but you're in close relationship with people who are. You're on the receiving end of this. You're on the receiving end of their bitterness and their anger and their threats and their manipulation and their lies and their bowing up. Their abusive behavior. You're on the receiving end of this. And, and here's what I just want to tell you. We want to be here for you too. And again, I don't know that we've always done that well as a church, but, but what you're going through is wrong and evil. That's the word Paul uses at the end of verse 31. It's malice. It's a word that just describes evil. It's contradictory to how God made us to be. It's contradictory to how God has redeemed us to be. If you're on the receiving end of this kind of emotional, angry abuse, we want to help you. We want to be here for you. It is not right. And you might need to forgive before God while at the same time create circumstances that create crisis for the person who's hurting you. You might need to involve some authorities. That might actually be one of the most loving things you could do. And forgiveness and love is exactly what Paul tells us we're supposed to put on in the next verse. So we put these things off. Maybe it takes time. Maybe it takes counsel. Maybe it takes relationship. But we begin to put off this kind of bitter fury, and instead we put on something else. We put on kind, forgiving love. That's my summary of verses 32 to verse 2. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul says, hey, instead of all the anger and the bitterness and the rage, put on kindness. Now, kindness is a word that's used over and over in the Bible to describe God. Here's one place it's used in 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, it's actually translated with a different word, but it's the same Greek word here. 1 Peter says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. How often does the Bible describe the Lord is good? Over and over. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what that word means? He's kind. Similarly, Jesus said this 
Luke chapter 6, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Pause there a moment. Isn't that good news? That God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil? (laughs) What better words could be used to describe all of us? Ungrateful and evil. Right? Notice, it doesn't say he's kind to the good people. There aren't any. He's kind to all the people who are trying harder. That's not what it says. It says he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God shows his grace to us, his love to us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says. That's the kindness of God. God is kind, and we are to imitate that kindness. We are to be kind to one another. Now, get this. Kindness and niceness are not the same thing. And, and I might just be playing semantics with words. Maybe it depends how you understand different words. But I, I think oftentimes we have a sense that in, in, the, in the church we should just be nice. And I don't think that's enough. And not just nice, we should be kind. I, I've actually stopped with my kids. I've, I've, I've tried to stop saying to them, hey, be nice to each other. Because to me, what nice is, is act like you like each other. I'd rather say, be kind to each other, because what that says is, like each other. (laughs) Do you get the difference? It's not just act like you like each other, like each other. Don't just act like you love each other, love each other. Again, I might just be playing with words here. But, but I think there's a motive involved in what Paul's talking about, which is what you get in the word tender-hearted. Do you see that in verse 32? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. In other words, don't just act nice like you're some phony person, but from the heart, love. From the heart, be kind. From the heart, forgive. This comes from a tender heart. Let me ask you, if you get an orange and you squeeze it really, really, really hard, what comes out? This is not a trick question. (laughs) What comes out? Juice. What kind of juice? Apple juice? Cranberry juice? That'd really be something. Orange juice. Why does orange juice come out? Because that's what's in there. Duh. Here's the thing. What's in your heart, Jesus says over and over, that's what comes out. And so when life squeezes you and date night gets canceled because the kid had a fever and this job, oh, I wanted this job, but I didn't get it. And we wanted to hire this person and they said no. And and disappointment, disappointment, it squeezes you. What comes out? That's what's in there. And what Paul's saying is over time, as you follow Christ, you're to be a person who, when life squeezes you, when when circumstances squeeze you, what comes out is kindness and forgiveness and love. That's what it results in. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's interesting, this word forgiving in the original language is in the present tense. Which what that means is you're to be constantly forgiving one another. See, Paul's wide-eyed about this. He's realistic. He knows we are in relationships with people who are constantly disappointing us, who are constantly hurting us, who are constantly sinning against us, and therefore we are to be people who are constantly forgiving. 
Same thing in verse 2 where he says, walk in love. This is not just a momentary, hey, one time, be loving, but live a lifestyle of constant and continual love, of forgiveness. Saying to someone, or saying to the Lord about someone, Lord, they hurt me. Lord, that was real. Lord, that made me angry. But God, I forgive them. And maybe having to pray that prayer over and over and over again. But, but, let me say this. If you're in a situation where you're being abused, where you're being hurt, one of the most loving and kind and tender-hearted things you could do is to alert authorities about that. Maybe it's police. Maybe it's friends who have influence in a person's life. Maybe it's church authority. You forgive them before the Lord, but you might need to say, you know what? They're not getting any better. They're just getting more bitter. And I need to intervene in a way that's going to actually be really, really painful, but actually really, really loving. Again, if you need help with that, if you need encouragement with that, we want to be here for you. So we're to put off bitter fury. We're to put on kind, forgiving love. What's the reason? Number three, because you are God's beloved, forgiven children. That's why. You're God's beloved, forgiven children. He says, verse 32, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Why do we do this? Because we are imitating our Father. That's what he says in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Notice. He does not say, be imitators of God as fearful slaves. Be imitators of God as barely tolerated acquaintances. No, as beloved children. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. When you were rebelling against God, he was pursuing you. When you said, God, I just want your money and your stuff. I don't really want you. God still came after us. When you were the one lost sheep, God left the 99 behind and pursued you. Imitate that God, is what Paul's saying. I love sometimes I walk into our living room and I will see uh, our four-year-old Mary on the couch. And she will be surrounded by her, some stuffed animals and dolls and things. And she'll have a book on her lap. And she doesn't read, but some of the books she's memorized. And so she'll be reading these books to her children. And sometimes she'll say, oh, hold, hold on, hold on, sweetie. Let's just go ahead and finish this book right now. Hold on. <laughs> what is she doing? She's imitating her mother. That's what children who are loved do. That's what Paul's saying. You're loved. You've been adopted, you've been welcomed, you've been forgiven. So now act like that, because that's how God treated you. You want to know whether God loves you? You don't need to do a word study on love. I've heard this a lot from preachers. I've probably even done this, where you try to break down how there's three Greek words that all mean love, and, but the, this kind of love is that you don't need to do that. What you need to do is just look at Jesus. You're not sure if God loves you? 
He does. Look at what he says. He gave himself up for us. That means he turned himself in. He turned himself over, not just to the authorities, but to death. Do you see what it says? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Offerings and sacrifices to God died. They had to give up their blood. And that's what Jesus did. That's how much we're beloved children. This is costly love. And that's what Paul's calling us to do, is to love in a costly way. Listen, listen. If you've been hurt, it is not easy to forgive. It is costly. Because everything in you wants revenge. You want to get them back. And to say, Lord, you know what? Vengeance is yours. You'll repay. But I'm going to forgive. That's hard. That's costly. Listen, Paul is not calling us to some kind of like just sentimental Christianity where we just roll over and let everyone hurt us and we go, well, it's okay, I'm going to forgive. No, he's wide-eyed about this. This is costly. This is difficult. But this is what Jesus did for us. Jesus is the one, the scripture describes, who is full of grace and truth. He's full of truth. He knows what sin really is. He knows how horrific it really is. He knows. He's he's not lost about that. He's full of truth. And he's also full of grace, full of kindness, full of mercy. And that's as God's children who we're to be. If if we're going to say we're Christians, we can't act like people who just do whatever we want. If we're God's children, we have to do what he wants. So I'm going to close our service with what I think is one of the most powerful examples of that. Some of you may have seen this like I did months ago on the news. I think I first saw this story on CNN.com about Larry Nasser, who was a physician who had abused hundreds of gymnasts at Michigan State and in the U.S. Olympic program and so on and so forth. And the judge in the sentencing process, gave the women who were abused the opportunity to say whatever they wanted to him. And the last woman who, was, who had the opportunity to speak was actually the woman who had first publicly raised the accusations. Rachel Del Hollander is her name. She's a serious follower of Jesus. And I think in these few minutes that I want to show you, what you get is a sense of what the gospel really does gives us clear eyes about sin, and yet it invites us to forgive and to love in a way that other from, apart from Jesus is not possible. Take a look. The cost, emotional and physical, to see this through has been greater than many will ever know. And Larry, I don't need to tell you what the cost of your abuse has been to me because you got to read my journals, every word of them, because those had to go into evidence to make this happen. But I want you to understand why I made this choice, knowing full well what it was going to cost to get here, and with very little hope of ever succeeding. I did it because it was right. No matter the cost, it was right. And the farthest I can run from what you have become is to daily choose what is right instead of what I want. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices over and over again to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness 
no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially, no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for forgiveness that you extend to us. God, we are so often full of bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and slander. We are not unstained. And you welcome us and you forgive us. You don't crush us, but rather you crushed your son for us. So God, could we, like Jesus, be full of grace and truth? Could we be kind and tender-hearted? forgiving one another just as God and Christ forgave us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.